I'll I'll introduce the I'll do the intro for the show, uh, and then I'll I'll say that we have you on as a guest, and I'll say hi to you, <laughs> and then I'll ask you about the song that you well, chose. Well, will I say hi back? It's up to That's you. That's up to you. Yeah, okay. It's up, it's up to, to you. you. You're your own. You're your own person, man. I mean, and, it, and it can come down to the fact that you could say hi back, and I might just edit you out. <laughs> That's true. You have no control. You have no Ultra control. power is the editor. Yeah. yeah. to Beats, Rye, and Types, your favorite podcast about music, food, and computers. I am here today with Aaron Quint, as always, and our special guest, Rob Carmichael from Los Angeles, California, uh, or currently residing in Los Angeles, <laughs> California, of Scene Studios. Uh, hi, Rob. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Hey. What's up? You said hi. <laughs> I did say hi. I knew you were going to say hi. Uh, we were introduced to the podcast by The Chills. That was a song called Night of the Chill Blue, which is, in fact, chill, as Aaron um, ass- assumed it would be. So Darkly chill. Yes, exactly. So we ask the, we always ask our guests to choose a song, and Rob chose a song, and then we, then we always ask them to tell us why they chose it. So, Rob, why did you choose that song as your intro song? Well, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite songs to begin with, but Mike and I have had a special relationship uh, vis-a-vis New Zealand pop music. So, you know, a little bit of shout out to that that side of our friendship or whatever. Um, but it's also just, uh, it's like a record that isn't, sadly isn't available right now. Uh, and it's just really one of the best songs I can think of. So just trying to get it a little exposure, I guess. Awesome. Well, um, so for all of you who really love that song, go fuck yourself because <laughs> you can't find it. There's there's great there's great live YouTube footage of it. Really good live YouTube footage of it from the '80s, but it, the record's out of print. Sadly, it should be reissued. Somebody should reissue. Yeah, reissue that yeah. shit. Yeah, Yo, Mike Sniper, reissue that. Yeah, shit. Mike Sniper, get on that. You know. Cool. Yeah. Rob introduced me to it was a couple of years ago. I don't this is one of those music scenes that I was kind of uh, peripherally aware of in the course of my music education, but had never like dug into. I think I thought I think I thought it was like more cutesier than it actually is. Well, for some, some, reason. some of it is right. Like, there well, is. it's it's kind of that's sort of a surfacey impression, because even if it's 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 actually like. I guess it's poppy and, and it's lo-fi, which in the Pacific Northwest usually equates true, with cutesy. True. But uh, in the, which which is other music that Rob also loves, I yeah. know for a fact. Um, Shrimper is probably one of your other favorite record labels, right? So probably, uh, yeah. I don't know why I never really listened to it, but it's actually one of those things that I was kind of happy that I never listened to because like discovering it as like a 30 something and having the ability to yeah. pretty much like access all of it immediately is an, <laughs> an immensely less frustrating way of consuming it yeah. than probably when, than you went through. But so what, how did you find out about that music and, and how did you get into it? Well, I mean, I would, I kind of didn't check it out for a long time because yeah, the emphasis is always New Zealand pop. There's always this pop thing and like 
you know, pop can be so disposable as like, you know, in many of its forms. So I guess when I was in college, just buying stuff through the Ajax catalog, which tell, I, tell our listeners what the Ajax catalog for is. For those people who don't know, it's sort of in the pre-internet age or, or very early internet age. The Ajax company would print out this, it was like this multiple page catalog on newsprint with descriptions of all these records. And you would send, you know, cash money or a check or whatever, and hope that the record was good. It was stuff that you often couldn't find in your local record store. Growing up in Portland, like I did, there were a couple of good record stores, but it's still hard to find a lot of this stuff. I think if you were in New York or something, a lot of these records probably would have made their way in. So the Ajax catalog was kind of the only way to, to get some of this stuff. And the guy who ran Ajax was really, really heavy into New Zealand music in general, the really sort of harsh experimental stuff, the more straightforward song-based stuff. So I can't remember what exactly I heard first. I think it was probably Chris Knox, who's super weird uh, in his sort of pop song construction. But and then, yeah, the chills, the bats, the clean, you know, all that stuff kind of. All very, all very good bands. And it's all kind of the same people playing on the same records. It's like Jamaica that way. It's like, there's like, 25 people total making these songs and they just swap out, you know, you play guitar on my record and I'll play, you know, drums for you, that sort of thing, you know? You mentioned Jamaica within the first 10 minutes. I thought it was yeah. going to be within the first five minutes. <laughs> so Rob is a, Rob's an old friend of uh, mine and a pal of Aaron's too. And we used to live together uh, in New York and uh, Rob moved to LA, you know, around the same time that a little bit before me, but before I moved down to DC and we wanted wanted to have you on the show obviously because you know you're you're one of my favorite people also Aww. because you are you're a very talented graphical design graphical graphic designer <laughs> you're a very talented graphic designer and uh, visual nice. visual thinker someone who's involved in uh, music and the music industry and and that kind of stuff so and we talk about music a lot uh, you know we talk about food and computers on this show too but we also just like to have people on who we think our guests would enjoy hearing from. I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about coding stuff. It would be really, <laughs> really hilarious for your listeners. Like, so you know, I mean, database, uh, database, database, data, database, database. I mean, I know you use computers to make your work. Yep. Although I try to sort of use them wrongly to like make things that look more interesting than right. Right. I try and break the computer. It's interesting to talk about the impact that technology might have had. I mean, how do you think about computers when you think about um, your relationship to them and the work that you make? Is it an, is that do you find that an interesting thing to like talk and think about, or are you just kind of like it's a tool and whatever? Is it just I don't a tool? Really care. Yeah. For the longest time, so you know, when I first started doing like record packaging design, it was for my own little record label that I ran, and everything I did on the label was handmade as resolutely anti-technological. I, you know, a, a typewriter was about the most high-tech thing that I used on anything. And uh, but around the same time, I started working like as a day job doing crappy computer design stuff. Uh, and I just thought of those two things as very separate. Like what I did for myself and for the record label was like soulful and okay. And what I did my day job was technological and soulless and crappy because I was working at a, a consulting firm doing PowerPoint work, you know, it was soulless work. 
but over over some time i realized that yeah that the comp- i could use the computer for good and not evil you know like make things so much you know computer based design is too precise it doesn't feel engaging i mean there's people who can make it engaging but that was always my hang up for the longest time once i figured out how to use the computer how i in a way that felt more human or engaging then it became a more I just, you know, I I, lo- I liked it more. I was able to figure out ways to incorporate it into my work. Another another designer who I know has a similar relationship with computers is Robert Beatty, who I know oh, yeah. is someone whose work you, who you really like. Yeah. And he's really into like this process thing. So like, so do you have like your own little like bag of tricks of things that are, are like little... Are they like yeah. tightly? Are they tightly coupled to like very specific arcane versions of Photoshop and <laughs> Illustrator or stuff like that? Or right. Kai power tools and yeah. get the flame effect going. And <laughs> I don't know if it's changed, but I know for a while, yeah, Robert had like this very particular copy of Photoshop that he didn't want to update because of the way that it worked and operated or whatever. I have special, I mean, I have like go-to techniques or whatever. It depends. You know, if I'm doing a, if, if I'm doing an album project where it's totally my own thing from the ground up, then yeah, there's definite sort of starting points. There's like, I have a folder of about 20 different scans of paper that I use as a basis for everything, which just basically the way I work in Photoshop, I, I need that slight irregularity of a real piece of paper to sort of base everything off of. I just exploit like all these like Photoshop filters and overlay situations that react to the very small imperfections of paper and start adding a lot of texture and depth to things. But then there's a lot of times where I'm working on something and it's the band wants me to use this photo and then I'm not doing that. Then I'm just trying to, you know, you know. Yeah, I'm, a- I'm actually kind of curious about that. I-, I mean, I'm an objective fan of yours. I mean, maybe objective is not the right word, but you know, I- I've known you for a while now and we- we've been friends, but I, I mean, I-, I like your work regardless of that. So like some of my favorite albums of recent years, you've also done awesome artwork for like Dirty Projectors and Real Estate. And so I'm always sort of curious what the process there was. Was it like something where you were working with a label or were you working with a band and did they just drop this on you or do you actually get to listen to the music? Um, what's the process there? I mean, it kind of happens. It kind of happens all those different ways. There are sometimes where a band brings me on and I'm working just with them. There are some times where the label brings me on um, and I have almost no interaction with the band. Sometimes I know the music and hear it. Other times I literally have not heard a single piece of the, you know, a single note until the record already comes out, which is funny because then afterwards when people say, oh, it fits the music so perfectly, (laughs) it kind of just goes to show, you know, that, that really the brain is pretty powerful in like drawing connections between the visual and music. Like, Sometimes I'm just winging it, you know, and, but yeah, um, so like for real estate, they usually have a, an image they want to start from, and then it's a matter of how to present it. And really they, you know, they love like old, like Steely Dan records and whatever. So I try and just do a very classical approach with their stuff. You know, something like the Dirty Projectors, Dave Longstreth is like a very, uh, he has a lot of ideas. And so in that case, that was like, literally like banging it out, like sitting next to him, which is a way I don't work with too many people because it can be very frustrating. But it was the two of us sitting in the like a room, like me doing something and him saying no and 
so there were so many iterations of that, of, you know, of like Bitter Orca before we came to that final. It really can be a whole lot of different ways. You know, someone can come with a very specific set of ideas. And my job is to make it happen in a way that doesn't look bad. You know, like, I mean, because, you know, like, there's a hundred ways to even just put down a, a photo with some text on it. There's ways that make it look like a local record that you find only at your local record store and <laughs> does not look really legit, you know? Um, well, like, and then there's, or like and then there's uh, ways cash to... money millionaire style. Right. Yeah. Or, the, yeah. Or then there's a way to make it look like a singer songwriter record from the seventies that looks legit and has like a sense of like history to it or whatever. And hopefully in those cases, my goal is to get it in that zone. But then, yeah, then there's times where it's just like, Hey, I want something really cool. Like, Here's some records that I like. Make something like that, you know. So it, it just depends. Uh, you were you were talking about the Ajax catalog, and uh, I mean, when you're an artist or like a graphic designer, and you're talented, I mean, there's a lot of avenues you could like take that, like with that talent or ability. Was was there a moment there when you saw something or like, oh, I mean, I want to design records? Yeah. Well, the weird thing, and I don't. I, I mean, I don't talk about it too much, but like, I don't have any sort of art training. I went, I was an English major at Swarthmore College. So, and I, and I like was terrible at art in high school. I, I'd try and draw things and it wouldn't work out. And my teachers, I got terrible grades in art and I was really like, I just kind of like assumed that I had no sort of, you know, reason to even try that sort of stuff. So it wasn't until I had my own little record label and it was really out of cheapness. You know, I just didn't want to pay to, <laughs> to so I just decided to do it myself, and I kind of liked it. Um, but I do remember in high school, the uh, I was a big fan of Camper Van Beethoven, um, and the um, the cover of uh, Telephone Free Landslide Victory, which was done by Bruce Lisher. He was uh, ran this press called uh, Independent Project Records Press. I I don't know IPR Records and Independent Projects Press. Um, he like they letter pressed all those sleeves, and I remember thinking how cool that was, but how, like, who could possibly ever do that for work? Like, that's just wasn't really, like, on my radar as a possibility. But yeah, once I started my own record label, then I realized, oh, it's just a matter of just doing it. Like, it it was one of those, mo you know, one of those, like, punk moments where you realize you can kind of do it yourself, and that's, like, a legit thing. And for me, it was, um, there's a cassette label in, like, the mid-90s called Shrimper, records i ordered some tapes it was like you'd send three dollars in the mail and they'd send you a tape and i remember um i ordered this tape by this band called refrigerator that i still really love um and when it was sent back to me it was like a photocopied j card it was sort of hand colored in and it was clearly the tape was clearly dubbed on an on a on a warner brothers promo cassette because because the cassette shell had the little like the little sort of slightly raised warner brothers logo on it the band or, or Dennis, the guy who ran the label had taken a Sharpie and just put an X through on the outside of the clear case. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's really just that that's all there is. You know, I, so I was a little late in finding this in, in high school when everybody's going to punk shows, I was a little too intimidated to go that. So I didn't really realize my DIY possibilities until later. I guess. It's kind of funny because I think all of us, all three of us ran record labels from our houses at some point. Um, I, I did a hip hop label in the nineties with my friends in New York. Um, and it, I mean, it was nothing great. It was just, it was just something that our friends made and got to like a couple hundred people, but yeah, but yeah, 
But the whole thing was, I mean, the whole thing was awesome, but it was all powered because my dad was the first one out of our group of friends to buy a CD burner, and that just totally changed the game, like, completely. But it was 1X, <laughs> so it, you know, took forever to do anything, and, I, you know, I had a little label maker and everything, but that that totally just changed the game. Um but it was so slow, I must have burned, like, but I still just burned, like, hundreds of CDs for all my friends and my friends' bands, and I would put the computer next to my bed. That was the big, that was a big revolution, so I could just swap out CDs without ever getting out of bed. That was awesome. But, you know, it was awesome because, you know, that same thing, once you realize that you have the power, you you feel pretty unstoppable, you know? It's just that, yeah, the idea, just because, you know, I think I'm a pretty rules-based sort of guy, which helps me with design but but that it can be sort of limiting in certain ways and so yeah i just didn't i just had this rule in my head that like music was made by like musicians labels were somewhere else and once i just had that glimpse that it was a totally false wall that i'd put up like you know yeah the world really opens up you know so what's the first who is the first person to like after rob's label was called ketchup plate but so was it, plate, yeah. was it after Ketchup Plate or during Ketchup Plate that someone asked you to make a cover for one of their records? When did that happen? I actually don't know the answer to this. I know, I've never heard you tell your your origin story before. but My origin story? Yeah. Well, I was bitten by a graphic design, radioactive graphic design. Uh, no, uh, my origin story <laughs> was, um, it's a little blurry. I was still doing Ketchup Plate when I moved. I, I went to school in uh uh, Swarthmore outside of Philadelphia. I lived in Philly for a couple of years and then I moved up to New York in 98. And I think, um, so I was still doing Ketchup Plate then, although it, it had been, you know, six or seven years at that point. My first gig was helping Black Dice do a seven inch uh -huh. um, for Black Dice, the band, um, did a seven inch for the label 31G. It was called Ball ball and peace in the valley i think um and it the idea was is there was going to be like a seven inch size sleeve but it was going to be a multi-page book with their art because they were a very visual sort of band so at that point i was working yeah i was working at accenture do in the powerpoint department <laughs> and so the entirety of of this black dice record for this like super intense you know record label was done after hours and on weekends in Midtown Manhattan at the Accenture New York headquarters. So Bjorn from the band <laughs> would come over <laughs> and I would, I would like, I like brought him in as a guest and, you know, we'd work and he'd have to go downstairs and like walk around the block for a, for a joint break and then come back in. And so it was all done kind of on, you know, illegally on the, uh, on the Accenture computers and then outputted. That wasn't a paid gig. The, the first paid gig was actually right after that Black Dice got signed to DFA Records and needed help. And so that was the first time that anyone had a budget to pay me for anything. That was Beaches and Canyons. I have that. I definitely have that Black Dice 7-inch with the book. And I definitely, ha I definitely have Beaches and Canyons somewhere. The amazing... If you, have the, if you have the first pressing of Beaches and Canyons, by the way, it's the... This is the collector. It, you know that I misspelled my own name in the credits. <laughs> that's so like yeah in like you know like on antiques roadshow in like you know 25 years they'll this person will bring in beaches and canyons and say i think i have the first press and the guy will say 
Well, it looks like Rob Carmichael's name is spelled correctly here, so in fact you have a layer pressing. Where is your name? There's like this, on the inner uh, thing, there's like a, there's a grid. It's so embarrassing. My own name, you know? Everything else is perfect. Uh, on the inside, there's Look. the pink. Yeah, you got it. Oh, this thing. Yeah, so like in the in the center, it's like reverse text, but in the center, you can see Carmichael. It's in like... It's just impossible yeah, well, to read this fucking thing. So we, we took the block of text and like reflected it. But like if you look basically in the center of the page... <laughs> yep, C-A-R-N-C-H-A-E-L. No yeah. I. Look, can you guys... Yeah, I definitely have the yeah. first press. First pressing, man. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, well, so... <laughs> I wrote I wrote the I wrote the review for this on that was on Pitchfork like so that's really funny because Rob and I we realized that we met much after this but Rob and I were like in the same circle of people and had a lot of friends in common around that time but never actually ended ended up meeting until later Mike was too cool and I never left my house so you know <laughs> well yeah there's that I, I it's interesting one interesting thing I think Rob about what you do is that a lot of people like I think even like Aaron's questions are are enlightening toward this point like everyone consumes like albums and album art and stuff but like no one knows how they're made right uh, and that and that's sort of like a similar thing with with like computers and computer programs and and actually also the another thing that they have another thing that what you do and what we do have in common is that your so-called like album design origin story sounds exactly like every beginning programmer's like first time understanding like what goes into actually making right. a program. Like you're fooling around and you're and all of a sudden you're like, oh whoa. Yeah, this is or like you come across or you find it in a magazine and it's like this is a program and you're like, that's a program? <laughs> like that what like that's right. it? You know, like and so one one theme that we come back to again and again on this show is like the idea of like staying curious of being open-minded like trying new things and thinking about like it's just so funny that like such a such a simple thing like sharpie on the outside of a like distributed cassette would like be the thing that like clued you in to the fact that kind of anyone can do this kind of thing. And when I was a computer science teacher, that was always like a thing that I tried to communicate to, to students that like, you know, you can make a website. It's actually just like typing a bunch of words into a text file and then saving it and viewing it, you know? And then for certain students, it was just magic for them because they, they I could see them having that same kind of reaction. It's a very visceral thing of suddenly being able to like participate uh, in this world that they felt like sort of excluded from, or it's the realm of experts or whatever, yeah. that kind of thing. Well, and the, and the participating was really, was just so amazing to me. I mean, when I first started my record label, the reason I wanted to do it is because I, I really wanted to be a musician, but like I tried that and like, <laughs> you know, I, I know that a lot of, you know, songwriting and musicianship is a lot of practice, but like, I, I think like I knew too much. I had too high of ambitions in my, my tendencies weren't really, you know, to, to make great, just non-embarrassing music. So, uh, so the record label, you know, and design stuff like was a way for me to be involved, which was really important. You know, I realized I was good at it, that like bands aren't particularly good at their visuals. They aren't good at getting a record out to stores necessarily, you know? Um, so it was a really, 
just participating was so valuable to me. It's like really important to me. Yeah, there, there was actually this other thing that inspired me to say that, Rob, yeah, you should be on the show other than we think you're awesome. Because about a week ago, you were tweeting about how someone wanted <laughs> art from you for free, right? And uh, that's kind yeah. of a theme that we have uh, talked about before, too. This theme that, like, certain – it's weird that, that basically certain art is sort of devalued even though it might take way more time than something else. I mean, you don't have to go into details, but if you wanted to kind of sort of talk about what prompted that anger or uh, because I have the same feeling sometimes, too. I mean, it's just interesting. But, yeah, it was just a label. A label got in touch. You know, hey, we have this new band. We really think it's great stuff. We really want to get this out to as many people as possible. We like this other stuff you've done. You know, we don't want that exactly, but we know that you're in the right zone. And so I wrote back and said, you know, great, like what's the time frame and what's the budget and can I hear a little bit of the music or can you tell me about? So they wrote back and gave me the time frame, which is doable. They sent me a link to a private SoundCloud and music is, you know, pretty good. Although truth be told, I do a, a lot of design for bands whose music I don't like. That isn't like a prerequisite, like, but, um, but in this case I was like, Oh, that's pretty good. And, uh, but they never wrote back about the budget. And so I just, kept on asking and finally they gave me like an incredibly low figure and this is a legit they have bands that like you know are all over pitchfork they have an office with multiple people working there and i I will do occasionally if it's the right project i'll do stuff pro bono for someone who's running a label out of their bedroom or for someone who i really like or for a non-profit or something but they're trying to make money off of this thing. And it was just really infuriating. And that happens with a lot of frequency. But this time I was just really, I was just really pissed off. You know, I think there are times where people think, yeah, that just that just having Photoshop and illustrator is means that you can do graphic design. And so much of graphic design, it doesn't really matter what tools you use, you just have to think about, it's all about practicing it's all about learning how to present things in a particular way and achieve a mood and you know whatever just try and like communicate stuff really effectively and uh i could probably do it with pencil and paper if i needed to uh it'd take longer anyway so it's just super frustrating that the long the the long story i mean i wrote them a you know uh, a long email and i copied the band's manager who to his credit like went to bat and like got them up to almost quadrupled the amount of money that they were going to pay me, which was really small to get it up into like, (laughs) but to get it up into the zone where like, it's like the sort of like lower end of what I would accept for a project like this, you know, it's just, it's frustrating because, uh, you know, sometimes when I quote people, you know, on what it should, you know, what it'll cost for me to work on something, it seems like a lot of money, but when you add up all the hours, it's not something that's done in like, you know, an hour or two. I mean, it's like, 30 hours of work or something like that. And if I do one thing on a discount, then I'm not doing something else. And suddenly I'm not paying like for my kids' health insurance and stuff like that. And, you know, it's maybe if I was 20 years old and didn't mind living on ramen, I would do that. Although I really think that even young designers, young, young people doing creative work or work for hire really ought to be asking for a legit rate just so it helps everyone. But, but it's just, it's just not something I can do. I can't, 
I can't take the fall for someone who has like a 401k plan uh, through their work, which I do not have as an independent contractor. Yeah, I mean, it, it's weird. It's weird. It, it really made me think about things. And I, don't, I, I mean, because it's not it's not all work, right? Not all people have that same thing. I mean, like, if someone goes to a lawyer, people are willing to pay whatever. And that's just like, oh, that's what lawyers cost. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are good lawyers and bad lawyers, and like a range. But there's a consistency in like an expectation that there's, I don't know, it's just that there's some sort of guild mentality or something where, where you're just not going to get it cheap or free. Or accountants, you know, they're like our cheap accountants, but they're much more of an understanding of like, oh, you're going to get what you pay for, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, totally. But then you talk to anyone who does creative work and there's like this upper threshold of how much people are willing to pay for oh, some yeah. specific things. Like I was, I was talking to this... Uh, baker recently and sure. they were saying how they were like for a loaf of bread i mean it doesn't matter how nice it is or how much work you put into it but they can only charge six dollars like that's as much as a loaf of someone's ever willing to pay for a loaf of bread. well that's what Sa that's what sarah minnick said when she came on the show yeah yeah that's right yeah, sarah yeah. exactly yeah we had this woman come on who make who makes makes pizza and sells pizza in portland for a living and has a pizza restaurant and she's like yeah, I can charge $20 for a pizza, but people won't spend more than $6 for a loaf of bread, which is like <laughs> arguably takes more effort to make the loaf of bread than it does yeah. to make the pizza. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, like definitely the definitely there's some like psychological thing where people think like this is not a thing that I should have to pay for. Uh, and if I have to pay for it, I, I get kind of angry. Yeah. Well, the thing that um, on my end, like I get angry, but there's also the sense that like you're saying no to money. It's It's not a lot of money. But like the the sort of instinct you have, the survival instinct, especially when you have kids or a family or whatever it is, I ought to take this because it's something. But what it's hard to see is the big picture of if I take this for this rate, then when the, the legit job comes along, I'm I'm in this stuck position where I can't take it because I I'm slaving away for one eighth the fee than this, you know, so it's. It's, it is really difficult in that moment. And it actually helps. I remember Mike having a conversation with me like drunkenly in New York a long time ago, as our conversations always seem to be. Uh, uh, you know, it's just like everyone doesn't get Rob Carmichael's work. Like it's not everyone doesn't you just don't get it. Like it, it isn't for everyone. Everyone doesn't have to have it like they need to pay, you know, a certain amount to to get what you do. And it's not a, it's not like everyone has a constitutional, whatever constitutionally guaranteed access to Rob Carmichael's <laughs> graph design. So, you know, I'd like, I tend to think, I uh, try and think of that. It's just the nice way of saying, fuck you, pay me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and it, it's really hard, you know, like coming up, you know, with like from the like independent music thing, like you try and be really helpful. You try, think of everyone as like your, you know, friends. It's a very friendly sort of thing. But like, once you like leave that, they're, people who would definitely want to take advantage of it, especially in this day and age when it's just, it's all about content. I mean, and everybody wants content, 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 content. And if I give somebody uh, an album cover or even just like a, a 1500 pixel JPEG to use for iTunes or whatever, they're going to make money with that. And it comes up a lot uh, these days because young people are, you know, young people have been kind of swindled into thinking that, uh, you know, exposure is like yeah. enough, yeah. you know? I mean, when, when we were coming up, 
exposure actually meant something, you know? It doesn't mean anything anymore, it's, right? Exposure is easy. Yeah, exactly. It's the easiest thing. You know, like for, for like a young, for a young Rob Carmichael, if you think about it, it's funny, right? Because you did the thing, you did the 3-1-G record for your friends for free. And then through that, you ended up getting like the job for the DFA record and then ended up doing a lot of work for DFA and ostensibly the animal collective work that you did came through doing all that stuff. And so you did it at the right time for the right reasons, right? It was like, these are my friends. I like this music. This scene is cool. I want to make this record. I want to participate. And this is the only way I know how was kind of. And you were learning how to do it, right? So so there's that, right? Mm -hmm. But. nowadays the platforms it doesn't cost them anything they don't have to do anything to provide people with that exposure so there's no sacrifice on their part yeah and so that's the missing piece there right right like that everybody's in it together sort of yeah like you did a thing and they like you know that was that was an ambitious project for like a shitty punk label in san diego (laughs) to be doing right right? and and like you did it yeah and they made this like thing that's like a really cool thing and and you know you were all like in that together and it's just it doesn't have that same exploitative uh, tone that so much stuff has now where people are doing all of this, like just all of these platforms. And I'm guilty of it too. Like, you know, all of the fucking tweets that I write that are owned by like twitter.com. Like what if I had all put all of the energy into writing all of those tweets into like something that was meaningful, you know, uh, yeah. and, and, and try to distribute it in some other way. Like, you, you know, I mean, that that's not necessarily like a, Apples to apples comparison. I mean, I, I think open source might even be it's a, a better really good analogy. One too. Yeah, 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 because um, there are just a lot of young developers or, or young guns or whatever who are putting a huge amount of effort and work into open source, and then, uh, but a lot of the work that they're doing for free is literally putting money in the pockets of larger organizations. I mean, that yeah. I mean that's that's fine. People are contributing to open source. And open source is great, yada yada yada. But people get a lot out of it, and I'm sh- I'm actually sure that a lot of those people get jobs out of it. But at the same time, there are boundaries, right? I mean, like I know for a fact that companies are s- sort of strong arming these young coders into doing work for free and doing maintenance for free or through hackathons or whatever. But it's all with like the bullshit promise of work that that it's all sort of hand wavy, like oh, eventually you're gonna get some work. But I mean, it's just there are people being taken advantage of for sure. I can say that honestly, like I've probably over the course of my 15 years doing this or whatever, I have done a ton of things where someone has said, it'd be great exposure or, you know, like it's a great opportunity. There'll be bigger paying projects later. I can honestly say that it's never once happened. (laughs) Never once. Never once. And so now like like, anyone doing anything you know, sort of creative or technical or whatever that you're doing for someone else, if they, if your compensation is that carrot of just, that's the biggest red flag. Just don't, don't take it. If it's, if it's going to lead to exposure for you later, I mean, the logic there is just so messed up. Like the, the, it would lead to more exposure for them now. Like, I don't know how it works, but it's just, I've never gotten more money. Uh, in a couple times, like I've done pitches and literally, and I'm talking about big bands that I'm not going to name here have taken like the type treatment I've used and just put it on a different cover. Like it's, it's literally there. Um, 
so just don't you like all you have if you're an independent worker like that is is your intellectual property and you gotta you gotta protect it somehow you know i've yeah never once i've never gotten another opportunity so now when someone says it'll be a good opportunity it'll lead to better things that's like that's just means like Really, I translate that as like I'm a douchebag. Like I don't care about what you're doing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the, it's just never, it's never come about. Well, and the, and the other thing is, is you know, just given on like looking at like the things that I've worked on that have resonated with people. Um, you know, that people now say, "Oh, I really like this one record cover you did." It's almost never something that I would have expected people would like a lot, and so. The work that I've done for pay, where I've been paid, you know, reasonably well, that I would have thought would get me a lot of exposure often doesn't. So just anyone who's saying they can predict what's going to get you noticed or not is just, they're just, they're totally lying to you. It's just not how, it's not how it works. Like, yeah, so many things that I just kind of like did, but I was like, ah, this isn't really gelling. I don't know how this is going to play with people, if it's going to be an effective cover or people will like it. That's the one that people will say later on, like, oh, this is really sweet, I, you know, like, or it'll be ripped off, you know, which is a fine, you know, or whatever, you know, like people use it for their own record or like similar ideas. So the, the idea that like someone who's working for a startup or working for a small label, like knows the market and the future so well that they can tell you what, that this thing is going to be huge and you're going to make, like, it's just not, it's not going to happen, you know, like do work that you want to do in a way that feels fair to you and fair to the people you're working for. And, you know, that's, that should be like the starting point for all this stuff. I feel like. Yeah. You know, don't, don't ask someone else to make a sacrifice that you're not willing to make yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean like yeah. there's plenty of times where I do free stuff or cheap stuff, you know, but yeah, you got to be into it and feel like you're part of a really, really like that you're an equal participant in the process rather than like, you know, hey, man, we've got this great opportunity. Got to, you know, jump on it right away. It'll be so good for you. You know, it's like that's that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like you, you were saying before, too, like it's it's there's some some people will know what what Rob is worth and what Aaron's worth and what Mike is worth. And, you know, you just have to wait for find to find those people who actually understand that. Right. And and will be willing to support you and will be willing to support the work and the creative work that you do. Yeah. You just can't, you can't like, you got to drop the fear that no one's going to call. If you like pass on this one thing that no one's going to call because otherwise you're just going to be doing work for basically people like the people who are asking for free stuff. 90% of the time, like don't have their shit together on the aesthetic front, on the organizational front they're not really going to be the best person to like advocate for you as a coder, designer, artist, musician, or whatever. Um, so you got to just, you just got to trust that if you're doing good work, it's going to happen. And it always has. Like every time I've done that, it's scary for like the six hours afterwards. <laughs> and then like something else comes up or like, you know, what other work comes in or, or whatever. You just, you know, get to hang out with your kids afterwards and it's, you realize that that time is important and you probably wouldn't have that if you're doing this dumb project for no money and a 24 hour deadline. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing ever needs to be done tomorrow. Yeah, it's true. Thanks so much for joining us and yeah. uh, hanging out with us for an hour. That was really, that was super fun. Thanks guys. Um, 
Yeah, anytime. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Beats Ride Types. We are also on Facebook. What? As <laughs> oh, man. Facebook.com slash Beats Ride Types. And tell recently, your mom like us on Facebook. Tell your mom to like us on Facebook. <laughs> we should have that. Rob will, Rob, will you for free design a t-shirt for us that says, tell your mom to like us on Facebook? Yeah, I Thank will you. actually for free. I'll, follow up, I'll yeah. follow up with you on that after the show. Yeah. I promise you'll get a lot of exposure. <laughs> um, we recently set up, uh, speaking of uh, paying us for shit we do for free, we recently set up um, a Patreon account, which is something that's kind of cool, which will let you donate dollars to us every month to support us in the production of this podcast, your favorite podcast about food, computers, and music. And you can find that at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash beats ride types and we'll put that in the show notes and yeah. plaster it all over everything from now on give us a dollar you can support our uh the twenty dollars i need a month to, to <laughs> pay for adobe software listen if all if all eight of you give us a dollar a month <laughs> that will be a really good start um that'll be enough for a loaf of bread is my understanding we have a bank account um this is not a podcast it's a burgeoning media conglomerate and uh, so, yeah, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we have some other fun, not as fun as Rob. Yes. Other fun yes. guests lined up soon. Don't worry, future guests, you're as fun. I'm just <laughs> and uh, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye, everyone. Peace. Peace.